guess I have to remember to turn on my microphone. Good morning, everyone. It was um, back in 1944 that uh, Fritz Heider and Marianne Simo made a minute that a movie that was one minute and 40 seconds long. And all the movie was, was these shapes you see in front of you just moving around. And after asking people to watch the movie, they then asked, what's happening? And the fascinating thing was everyone had an explanation about what was happening with these moving shapes. They would say things like, that little triangle seems to be running away from that big triangle. And as they identified each one, they would give a, a shape and an identity and they would talk about the things that it was doing. And they even assigned personality traits like that big triangle that's bullying the little triangle. And what was most interesting was that these two people who put the movie together just put a bunch of shapes that were moving around. But it shows our tendency as people, when we see things happen, we create narratives. We, we put them together like cause and effect. And, and as we put them together, then we come up with an explanation about things that are happening. And have you ever noticed that we do that in our lives? Things happen and we say, well, this happened because of this and this happened because of this. And we tell these narratives about things that are happening in our lives. One of the seasons when we tend to do that an awful lot is during times of hardship or times of suffering. And it seems to me that a lot of people like to go to the book of Job when it comes to a time of hardship and a time of suffering. And if you remember that, that book in the very uh, beginning Three times it's mentioned this about Job, that he was blameless and upright and that he feared God. And so a lot of times we, what we do when we're, we're suffering or going through hardships is we, we make ourselves parallel to Job. We become people like Job who when we ask why do um, bad things happen, we say, well, sometimes if you're a God worshiper, a God lover, a God follower, then sometimes you will experience suffering. And armed with Job's story, we have the narrative that we need about the times of suffering in our lives. But there's just one problem. That's a partial truth. It's a truth in certain situations and certain scenarios, but I hate to say it, but guess what? We're not all Job, are we? Do we always innocently suffer? See, what happens, what's happening in the book of Isaiah as of Isaiah chapter 40, the people are wrestling with exactly why are they in this context of suffering. And they do what we do, and they ask, what's God's relationship to it? And as we've shared before, they've come to these two main conclusions. The first is, well, maybe we're in exile because God couldn't save us. He wasn't powerful enough. He wasn't able to deliver us from the Babylonians when they came and took us into captivity. And then there are others who say, well, maybe God just doesn't care about us. And that's why we're suffering. That's why we're going through these hard times and these difficulties. See, the problem that Israel had is actually a problem that I think sometimes we have, which is that we like to look out the blame window. Where when we get into a situation, we begin with the assumption that the problem has to be out there somewhere. And in their case, the problem is out there with God. And have you ever asked yourself God-related questions when you're suffering? Why didn't God dot, dot, dot? Why didn't he intervene? Why didn't he save me? Why didn't he deliver me? And when Israel asks these questions, they come up with those two answers. Either God isn't able or God just simply doesn't 
care. And the problem is with all their wrestling, they've actually forgot to uh, do something that we all need to do, which is to look in the contribution mirror and to look at ourselves and to say, is there anything I have been doing that might deserve this outcome? Now, that's not to say anytime we suffer, we suffer directly because maybe we've sinned or we've done wrong. But it is to say sometimes we have to be willing to ask the question, have my choices contributed to the hardship and to the suffering that I'm experiencing? See, what Israel did is they said that the problem has to be out there. And when Isaiah writes to them, he reminds them, oh, the problem is not out there. If you took an honest look in the mirror, you would realize there are some things in your lives that need to be addressed. And so in this first movement, what Isaiah does is he helps them to look in the mirror and to see their own wrongdoing and their sin. So a reading from Isaiah 42, verses 24 through 25. Who gave Jacob to the spoiler and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? In whose ways they would not walk? In whose law they would not obey? So he poured upon him the heat of his anger and the fury of war. And it is to set him on fire all around. But he did not understand. It burned him, but he did not take it to heart. In other words, Isaiah is saying, God is playing a role in you being sold into captivity, but he is not to blame. In fact, the reason God did is so that the people would become aware of their sinfulness. They would become aware of their rebellion. But even as they've been sold into slavery, they've never taken ownership for the choices they've made, for the things they've done. And they continue to say, God, why did you do this? When God wants them to ask, what did you do that deserves the things that are happening in your life? I think sometimes it's a little bit hard to look in that mirror to ask what's going on here. What have I done? What might have I contributed to this? In fact, it's terrifying sometimes, isn't it? You ever watched a scary movie? It's dark. The, the music, dun, 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 it slows down. And they're walking towards the door. And you're saying what? Don't open it! You don't want to know what's out there and what's in there. And, 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 and like it's just going to be bad, whatever's behind that door. And the reason that's such a terrifying thing is because of the way they set up the scene and and, and how they, you know, they don't, there's just usually one or two people going to a door, it's dark, but what if you change the whole scene and it's light outside and you look behind you and there's about 20 SWAT members there and say, go ahead, open the door. You can handle whatever comes out of there. I think the reason sometimes we're so afraid to look in the mirror of our own contribution is we're afraid to see what might honestly be behind that door. And we wonder, will we, we be able to handle what we see in our own lives and in our own sin? And so Isaiah introduces them to their sinfulness, but very quickly as a follow-up, he reminds them of the God who will meet their needs. Are we on the proclaim page? There we go. Oh, there's that door, the scary door. We don't need that anymore. We're done with that. So God promises to meet their needs. Notice what Isaiah 43, 1 says. But now says the Lord, He who formed you, O Jacob, He who created you, O Jacob, Who formed you, O Israel, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. 
there's something about these pieces of the puzzle in my mind that just don't fit together. Isaiah says, look in the mirror. See how you have sinned. See how you have refused to walk in God's ways as you refuse to live in the way that he's called you to live. And now that you're aware of that, let me tell you what God's going to do. But now thus says the Lord, do not fear. Why shouldn't the people fear? We've realized that they are in captivity because they have rebelled against God. We've also been told, Isaiah 42, 18, the people are blind and deaf. They're not seeing or learning the lessons that God intended them to learn. And then they're told, do not fear. In fact, in this section, they're told twice not to fear. And the reason we are told is because he created you, O Jacob. He formed you, O Israel, and I've called you by name. Those three themes at the beginning will be each repeated at the end. And the question we ask ourselves then is, why did God graciously act on Israel's behalf? And in this section, you will find the use of two names repeated, Jacob and Israel. And we need to remember um, the relationship of these two th names because only once they are inverted, it's always Jacob first and then Israel second. Do you remember who Jacob was? Jacob had a twin brother. And let's just say Jacob was a scoundrel. He was a deceiver, a cheater. A, 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 a liar. In fact, he had a brother named Esau, and Esau was a pretty good guy. I, I would have much preferred if the Bible followed his life, because it seemed like whenever he was in situations, he always took the higher road, the more noble road, the more righteous person, and Jacob was just plain a loser. And yet he was chosen by God. At what point? When he was Jacob. Later, we have this event where Jacob wrestles the angel, and after wrestling the angel, his name has changed. He's now Israel. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, when was God compassionate? When Jacob was Jacob or when Jacob became Israel? And what this passage is reminding us of is the fact that when Jacob was Jacob, the loser, the sinner, the deceiver, that God said, at that moment, I create you. And then God formed him into Israel. And now Israel as a nation is wrestling with this very same question. At what point does God begin to choose us? At what point does God begin to act graciously on our behalf? And the answer is not, when you become Israel, then I'm going to start being involved in your life. At the very point you were still Jacob, sinful, disobedient, rebellious, at that moment God began to act graciously on behalf of his people. It's said that there are two kinds of love in this world. The first is what is called performance-based love. And performance-based love says, if you will, then I will. So I wait and see how you behave. I wait and see the kinds of things you do. If you do good things, I do good to you. If you do bad things, I do bad to you. And if you're in a relationship that's performance-based, here's what you keep saying to yourself, I am loved because of what I do. And what happens when you stop doing things that are worth being loved for? You know you're going to be out on the curb. That's one kind of love. The second kind of love is identity-based love. This is when one loves because of who they are. They say, because of who I am, then I will. So my treatment of you, my action towards you is not based on what you do. It's based on the kind of person that I am. And one who is loved in this way says, I am loved because that's the nature of the one who loves me. What Isaiah is reminding Israel of 
is his relationship with them is not performance-based. It's identity-based. You'll notice over and over again in Isaiah 43, 1 through 7, that the reason God is pursuing his people, it doesn't say, you know, because, because you, 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 you did great things, or because you, you did wonderful things, because of that I decided. Isaiah says, because he's that kind of God. He does this, and he does this, and he does this. So that's the only way to put these two statements together, these two sections. Goes through saying, hey, you're a sinful, awful, terrible people, and God's going to be kind and gracious to you. And the only way to put those together is because that's the nature of our God. See, I think when learning to talk about our lives, the events and the circumstances of life, we need to make sure we're making the right I statements and we're making the right he statements. Sometimes when talking about God's goodness, you will make I statements. And those I statements are much like what Isaiah said of Israel. I sinned. I did not obey. I turned away. But then we also learn to tell he stories too, don't we? He pursued. He was gracious. He gave. And a lot of times we easily mix up what he did and what I did. There is a hero in the story. It's just that you don't get to be the hero in the story of faith. God is faithful and God always deserves the credit. In the next section here in Isaiah 43, we have what I've called an idle interruption. It's not an interruption, but to us it seems like an interruption. Um, one of the things in Isaiah 40 and onward is, is it seems like God says something about idols and then apparently he moves on and then we're talking about idols again and it's confusing to us. And I think the reason that Isaiah continually comes back to this topic of idols is because if you're looking out the blame window, who has received the blame for them being in captivity? It says God did this because either he wasn't able to or because he doesn't care. And so they're in the market right now for a new deity. They're looking for a new God. Like, Imagine what it would be like if you had an insurance company. And you, you talk to friends about this insurance. It's a great insurance company. You know, I mean, the rates are great. Uh, you know, every time I call on the phone, they're really kind and they're really polite. And their app, you can navigate the app really easily. And then you have an accident and you have a claim. And they're not going to pay for the things they're supposed to pay for. And you wonder, I don't know if they just don't have the money to do it or they just don't care. But all those positive things you said, when you got into a bind... You're going to be looking for a new insurance provider, aren't you? If they're not going to cover the things they're supposed to cover. So when Isaiah comes back to these conversations about idols, he knows the people are tempted. They're on the market. They're wondering, should we actually be going and following, finding another God who can maybe actually protect us in our times of suffering and in their times of hardship? And so here is a, a sense, a taste of the kinds of things that God says in these idol interruptions. Before me, no God was formed nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. God sets up the side-by-side -side comparison. If you shop for insurance and you put the benefits and the, the, the cost side-by-side, -side, he puts it up side-by-side -side in such a way that you'd realize anybody would be foolish to turn to idolatry instead of trusting in God. The next movement here is that Israel is told of God's plan to deliver them from Babylon. Again, just one verse to give us a 
taste of this section. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon. I will break down all the bars and the shouting of the Chaldeans will be turned to lamentation. So what God is saying is there's going to come a time he's going to take them out of Babylonian captivity. He is going to provide for them. He is going to deliver them. And in doing it, he uses these, um, these words that give us echoes of what he did with his people when he brought them out of Egypt. He talks about making a way in the sea. He talks about the chariot and the horse, making a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. And so he plants these seeds to get us thinking about what God did when he brought the people out of Egypt. And then, interestingly enough, Isaiah says this, Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I appreciate what Jeff was saying this morning. We take the, the Lord's Supper and what do we do? We remember. And 98% of the times when the Bible says to remember things, it talks about things of old so that we would remember here. And now Isaiah says what? Do not remember the former things even after making allusions to the Exodus. So what's going on here? What's going on here is sometimes when God has worked in the past, we get to a place where we think, oh, I know what God's up to next. I, I can predict. I've, I've seen him work in the past, and I can predict what God's going to do next. And Isaiah is saying this. Even if you know the story of God's deliverance from Egypt, just know what he's going to do this time is something different. It is a new work that he's going to do. So what's that new work? Well, he's going to tell us in just a little bit. There's been these four major sections in what we just looked at. There's the failure that is exposed. God's promise to meet their needs. There's an idle interruption. There's a promised coming redemption. And guess what? In these next verses of Isaiah, Isaiah has these exact four categories again, but in a new way, in a different way that he brings them up. So their failure is once again exposed. You did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. It seems like what Isaiah is saying is that the people are no longer participating in the rituals of worship. We go back to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 10 where it becomes very clear they are doing that. In fact, through this whole time period, that's the one thing Israel would do. They would show up at the temple, they would say what they were supposed to say, they would do what they were supposed to do, and they would leave. But the problem is if you're not doing things with a right heart, God's going to say, you're worshiping, but you're not really worshiping. You're giving, but you're not really giving. And so that's the concern here is about the ritual behavior that has lost all of its life to it. One writer says, there was much religious fervor, but no religious reality. So Isaiah says, look in the mirror. You're going to blame God? What have you contributed to this? And then just as he did previously, God then promises to meet their needs. In the first section, that meeting of the needs focused on their enslavement to Babylon, and now there's a new focus in the meeting of their needs. This is a sample of what he talks about. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, 
I will not remember your sins. The first was a focus on the deliverance from Babylon, and now there's a focus on something to do with sins. And it's here we get the hint of what the new thing is. There's two types of freedom. The first is, and I wish there was another title for this. It's probably not the best one, but it is what it is. It's negative freedom. Negative freedom is the removal of external constraints that restrict our choices. So in this sense, we know that Israel is under Babylonian rule. They're lacking certain freedom because Babylon can tell them what to do. They have these external constraints. So in this first segment, what Isaiah said is God's going to remove that external constraint. He's going to solve the problem of negative freedom, and you will no longer be in bondage to Babylon. But there is then this second positive constraint, which is the power to choose what is good. Did you know that you can take away an external constraint from a person, but they still be in bondage to their sins, to their choices? Language you might hear used about this is enslaved to their compulsions or addicted. Addicted people are free in terms of external constraints, but it is something internally to which they're still in bondage. And if what led Israel into captivity was their sin, and God says, we're going to take you out of captivity, guess what the problem is? The sin is still there. The sin that led them into captivity is going to be the very sin that leads them back into captivity. God did take his people out of Egypt. The problem is, as one Bible writer says, is it's easy to get the people out of Egypt. It's hard to get Egypt out of the people. Which means when you love things you're not supposed to love, even if you're put into a new setting, you're going to default to those things that are sinful and rebellious. And so the new thing has these different elements. The new thing will, first of all, be a deliverance from Babylon. But the new thing will also be internal deliverance from sin. Now, Isaiah's not ready to tell us exactly how that's going to happen, but he's just going to say, God's going to deal with the sin problem. But then there is this third element. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Notice the third thing, there's going to be internal empowerment by the Spirit of God. You think about these things, forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That reminds you of anything in the Bible? People cried out in Acts chapter 2, brothers, what shall we do to be saved? And we talked, we're introduced to this concept of baptism. Baptism does two things. In other words, it's the removal of sin. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the new thing that was talked about. It's not the same as the first exodus, which is just taking people out of the external constraints. God's going to deal with the heart problems that got us into trouble to begin with. We then have, not surprisingly, an idol interlude where God once again says, and you want to choose an idol over me? And then now there's a word of deliverance, but this time the word of deliverance is not about deliverance from Babylon, but it's a word of deliverance from sin. And so I want to read for us Isaiah 44. 21 through 23. Remember these things. Remember we were told earlier, don't remember those things of old. God's going to do a new work, and when he does, what are we supposed to do? That's what we want to remember. God's new work. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, 
for I have redeemed you. And then how do the people respond? Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Bring forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. And I think these three verses give us everything we need to know about narrating our lives. In times of joy and in times of suffering, here's the storyline. First of all, we always need to look into the mirror of our contribution. And I think you will realize what God says of Israel is true of us. We have sinned. We have not obeyed his law. We have forsaken him and forsaken his teachings. But despite all that we've done, in all the ways that we lived and acted just like Jacob, God redeemed us. God was at work when we had a sin problem. And God has, through the cross, provided us a way to deal with the sin problem and to receive the promised Holy Spirit. He does this in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and as we share in the waters of baptism in his death, burial, resurrection. And then this third movement, God always gets the glory. Who are we singing to? Who are we celebrating? Who are we saying has done it? God. God has done it. See, what we're going to do in just a minute is we're going to sing a song, Amazing Grace. We're going to do what this verse says. The people who have tasted of God's new thing, they will shout that he has indeed done it. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we go from here, we remember that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand and sing this next song together. If you have any kind of a need, I invite you to come to the back while we sing this song together. Let's stand.